I can still remember it like it was yesterday. Going down to the computer lab, sliding the huge floppy disk in the disk drive, typing in the run command and watching the title screen fade onto the screen. Every student wanted to play Oregon Trail to ford the rivers, to hunt for food, trade with the natives, and most of all, try not to die of dysentery. The first version of Oregon Trail was written 40 years ago this month, and today we're going to trace this early edutainment game from its original version on through the version that millions of children associate with today. We'll talk about how it came to be, look at all the changes throughout the years, and talk about its long-lasting legacy as we take today's educational trip down memory card lane. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. I hope these words find you happy and well. Hello and welcome to the 66th episode of our Video Game Nostalgia podcast, A Trip Down Memory Card Lane. Each week we take a look back at one title relevant to the current week in gaming history and we talk about it. While doing so, we hope to teach you something new about the game, what it took from the world as its inspiration, and what it gave back to the world in its legacy. Today, we are taking a look back at the beginnings of the educational software genre, or edutainment, as we look back at the OG of educational software, Oregon Trail. So I guess it'd be the OT, huh? I guess it'd be the OT. The Oregon Trail originally existed on a Minnesota school district mainframe computer way back in December of 1971. I'm David Casson, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, who has spent his life with an irrational fear of dysentery, thanks to this game probably, my brother, Rob Casson. Rob, totally unrelated, have you ever had to ford a river before? Um, I've never tried buying one, but I doubt I'd have enough money for one, Dave. No, no, no for- <laughs> Aha, aha. Stupid. But not stupid. That was actually pretty clever. Thank you. Thank you. No, I, I, I've i never had a reason to drive a Ford into a river. Very true. How you doing? Doing well. How are you? I'm doing good. What are we playing this week? Well, this week we're playing some RuneScape. Yep. Some, uh, we're going to be playing some Battlefield. There's going to be some Rocket League. And, uh, you know, we, we obviously... Had him playing Farming Sim 2022. That's exactly right. Farming Sim 2022. Yes. that's. How about you, Dave? I've never understood, for starters, your fascination with Farming Sim. I, I, I mean, I guess I do. I've played games like that, but you really like that game. You really like that game. Like, really, really like that game. Is it like, to you, like a, a 3D version of like Harvest Moon or something like that? Like, why? What's the draw? I mean, it's relaxing. It's not something I have to put a lot of thought into. And not to say that you don't have to in real farming. I know that's a lot of work. Um, But at the same time, like being on a farm for some time is nice. And although I would probably hate my body would hate me at the end of the day, every day, forever. I would probably still enjoy it. Very true. And just getting to be able to do it in the game. And plus, there's a lot of 
things in that game that even if I were to say, go work on a farm for the rest of my life, I will never be able to do, you know, I'm not going to go and get a logging machine and cut down trees and log them. And I'm not going to raise every animal under the sun and get to use every single telehandler and so on and so forth, you know? Yeah. But a lot of those giant like combines, the really high tech machines, they like drive themselves nowadays. They use GPS and, um, they used to yeah, just drive themselves. It's, it's it's pretty awesome. Technology is uh, a very awesome thing. Yeah, but the downside of that is this fight that everyone's been having with John Deere over the rights to repair their machines. The the software has been one of the the major problems because it pretty much locks farmers who are used to fixing their own machines for most of their life out of the ability to fix a lot of things. And look, let's be honest, cars have kind of been the same way for us. You know, we're used to having grown up around cars and older cars are very mechanical, but the newer you get in, there's so much electrical. It could be argued that cars have kind of followed the same suit where it's getting more difficult to fix things because less of it is mechanical and more of it is electrical and software based. Yeah, I I can't argue with that. I mean, having worked at a dealership, I I see exactly how much of that is the fact. I mean, I know myself that if something finicky started happening with my car, I would not have the slightest clue if it was something to do with a computer, how to fix it. It's not, I don't have some program. I know there's probably some dealer program you have to have to be able to go in there and check parameters and blah, blah, blah. And maybe have to reflash the ECM or whatever. But I, I, it's not easy. It's not something I can just go and do and like, oh, hey, this pulley obviously looks worn down. Let's replace it. It's not that easy. Right. Well, I have no intention of playing Farming Sim 22. Very sorry. I may join you someday, but it's not like I I, I don't have to race to get it. You know, um, for me, it's been a little bit of Rocket League, some Halo and yeah. um I don't know what else. That's pretty pretty much. Oh, Forza. I've been playing a lot of Forza. That should come as no surprise. I, so. I don't know how I can't, I didn't mention those either. That's weird. Because yeah, I don't know. I guess I just uh, mm. farming sim consumed my mind. That's right, farming sim. It is. I you know I don't. <laughs> we already went over it, Dave. <laughs> yeah. No. All no. right. No. No. I know. I'm not going into the. I don't understand your farming sim. I'm just saying. I don't know of games i get that excited about which i guess is a good thing and it's nice to know that you still get that excited for games but i can't think of something that i i need to have like that that's out or on its way out that i can think of at least well dave we're not here to talk about about farming (laughs) sim but i think it's time for us to talk about surviving sim yeah 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 surviving sim it is that's a good way to put it the original surviving sim right exactly well i mean i hope it's the original it's one of the like living it's one of the originals so we're here to talk about the oregon trail oregon trail depending on where in the country you're from and the history of the oregon trail as a video game goes way way back to 1971 where a history major at carlton college in northfield minnesota who goes by the name of Don Rawwich. Rawwich? Rawwich. Yeah, that looks right, doesn't it? Ravish. Rawwich. It doesn't Ravis. matter. 
this gentleman named Don. <laughs> that's what we'll go for now. <laughs> I just take the easy way out. A A Ron is A A Ron here. <laughs> anyway, uh, this gentleman taught an eighth grade history class at a junior high school in Minneapolis as a student teacher. His supervising teacher assigned him to prepare a unit on the Western expansion of the mid 19th century. And good old Don here decided that he was going to create a board game activity about the Oregon Trail for his students. So after one week of planning the lessons, he was in the process of drawing out the trail, the Oregon Trail, on sheets of paper on the floor of his apartment when his roommates, fellow Carleton students Bill Heineman and Paul Dillenberger, or Berger, came in. Heineman, who along with Dillenberger, was a math student, and a student teacher with experience in programming. And so they discussed this project with Rawich, and they told him that it would be very well suited for a computer program, which could keep track of the player's progress and calculate their chances of success based on their supplies instead of a dice roll. Hmm. So in the beginning, Don was initially hesitant, you know, because it sounded really cool, but he had only two weeks to complete this project. Still, his roommates, Heinemann and Dylan Berger, felt that they could do it if they worked long hours each day on it. Now, it's important to remember that this is 1971. The video game industry was literally in its infancy. This is before Pong or, or any of the things that we know of and consider to be traditional video games. And so realistically, these three had no resources to to go to to develop a game software beyond what, you know, their own programming knowledge. And so what they did is they spent two weeks pretty much nonstop working and coding uh, on a timed shared basic machine uh, by themselves. It's, it's really impressive when you think about it. Yeah. So, good. I mean nothing you know we get to go online nowadays and and google everything and look at a youtube video but these guys were literally writing the books as they went along you know that's yeah no i mean it's definitely still doable today but it's just it's it's a lot more incredible when you think about it because technology just wasn't there no i mean no it was to work a lot more diligently i feel so good old Donnie focused on the design and historical portions of the game, while Heinemann and Dylan Berger did the programming. They worked on a teleprinter that they kept in a small room, which was formerly a janitor's closet at the school that they taught at, Bryant Junior High School, and then they would bring it back to the apartment to continue working. So apartment, janitor's closet, you know, typical programming spaces. Yeah. Heinemann focused on the overall programming and came up with the hunting millen, millen game, <laughs> mini game, while Dillenberger made subroutines for the game to use, wrote much of the text displayed for the player, and he was the bug tester too. And so they only had one terminal between them. Uh, the way they did it was Heinemann wrote the code on paper, and Dillenberger entered it into the system, making changes as he went along. So, yeah, I know it was handwritten to begin with, huh? Jeez. I remember handwriting code. It sucks. It sucks big time. (laughs) It's so bad. So in those two weeks, they were able to implement the basics of the game, including purchasing supplies, making choices at specific points of the journey, and the hunting minigame. They were also able to include random events happening to the player, 
Um, and Heinemann is the one, he actually came up with the idea to make the random events that uh, tied to where they were in the trail so that cold weather events would be more likely in the mountains and attacks were more likely in the plains. Um, as part of this, they also added small randomization of outcomes, such as the amount of food you gain from hunting, um, and, and, and they randomized other things. Basically, they looked at that as an opportunity for people playing the game to be interested in playing it more than once because there would always be some variation between the plays of the game, right? Right. So prior to Rawich's history unit, Heinemann and Dylan Berger let some students at their school play it to test it out. And the students were beyond enthusiastic about the game. You know, they would stay late uh, at school to play. Um, They also put some teachers in front of it. And unlike the students, the teachers were not as interested, but they did make some helpful recommendations to the game. Uh, One in particular was that they suggested removing what they called negative depictions of Native Americans because they were they were they felt like they were more best uh, based out of depictions of American Native Americans in the movies rather than actual historical um, historical depictions, um, which would be problematic towards students that would possibly have Native American ancestry. Hmm. So on December 3rd, 1971, the Oregon Trail was debuted to Rawich's classes. And realistically, none of them knew how it was going to go. I mean, the playtesting was mixed as far as they saw it. The kids liked it, but the adults hated it. And and you never know how it was going to go moving on from there. It was a hit. You know, they they definitely had students that were uninterested in history before that. But after this, after he showed these, these students who had no interest in history, they were showing up at the door... Uh, for their turn and would stay after school for another chance to play the game. So uh, um, in a later interview, Rawich recounted that as only one student could use the teleprinter, which was the, uh, think about this, the the way this game was played is they, they put a text in and then the teleprinter kicked back the response. So as only, they could only use one teleprinter at a time. The students would organize themselves into voting for responses and delegating students to handle hunting. There were students that would follow the map. There were some that would keep track of supplies. So they kind of worked as groups to keep track of all these different things. Um, as it gained popularity, the teachers started to warm up to it too. You know, other teachers at the school would come up with what Rawich recalled as really flimsy excuses for their students to play the game as well. Hmm. Now, this entire school district shared a central, uh, a single central mini computer. And because of this, the whole school district could play the game. And so schools across the city began to play the game as well. However, back then, they really didn't hold computer games or computer software as, you know, they weren't they weren't permanent back then. People didn't think about that. So when the semester and his student teaching term ended, um, Rawich and his team remembered to print out copies of the so- source code. The original Oregon Trail ended up being about 800 lines of code, and then the program was deleted from the computer mainframe altogether. And that brings us to the next version. So in 1974, Donnie, good old Donnie, was hired by the Minnesota Educational Computing Consortium, which was a state-funded organization that developed educational software for classrooms as a liaison for local community colleges. 
Like the Minnesota School District, the MECC had a similar mainframe computing system that would connect to various schools across the state. And it was this system that they used to distribute their educational software. At the time, they had several different programs. And so the MCC, MECC would allow programmers to submit their own programs to the mainframe. So with the blessing of his roommates, Heinemann and Dillenberger, Rawich spent the 1974 Thanksgiving weekend copying and adjusting the printed source code to be entered into the MECC system. Uh, in the meantime, you know, in between versions, he had conducted more research. And so as he did this, he kind of enhanced the game based on this research, um, based on his research, right? Um, as part of these changes, he changed the frequency and types of historical events such as bad weather or wagons breaking down. And he based these on actual historical probabilities for what happened along the trail. Uh, he also took the feedback. Uh, you know, they removed the depictions of Native Americans in the original, but in this one he had added what he called positive depictions of Native Americans based on research that he found, which indicated that many settlers uh, who traveled the Oregon Trail would receive assistance from Native Americans along the way. Now, this 1975 version, because it came out in 1975, this 1975 version of the Oregon Trail was easily the most popular software in the Minnesota and all of Minnesota schools for at least five years, and it was played thousands of times monthly. Now, Rawich would end up publishing the source code for this version of the Oregon Trail in Creative Computing's May and June of 1978 issue. Alongside it, he posted all the historical information that he had used to refine the statistics, but it was pretty cool because if you had that issue, you could literally publish or recreate the Oregon Trail on your own computer at home when that became more commonplace. Um, but even still, even though these three men had created this game, most people saw it as something that was given to them by the MCC, MECC, right? And so the MECC were, were widely seen as the creators of the game because there really, you know, really wasn't individual credit given to its actual creators. The truth of the matter is, is these three, Rawich, Heinemann, and Dillenberger, they weren't publicly acknowledged as creators of this original game until 1995, 20 years later, when the MECC finally honored them in a ceremony at the Mall of America. Um, can you imagine that, like, writing what ends up being one of the most popular educational games of all time and, and, and having to wait 20 years for someone to say, good job, you, you know what I mean? Yeah, that's that is pretty crappy. But I also have to say the fact that they had the entire source code in this magazine. Um, that's insane to think that it fits, because just think of how much code would have to be published now for a game. Oh, yeah, you could never do it now. But um, I used to I used to get those magazines and and recreate the code in basic when we had computers and I was young. And I mean, you know, they were it, I mean, 800 lines of code wasn't a big deal. It took forever to type and we, we didn't have the ability to save it so you could play a game. Man, I remember it was so cool. Dad bought me a book and I'm sure I've talked about this in a podcast before, but dad bought me a book of 
like basic games you can create at home. And they were basically like, we would just type in, you know, copy it from the book into the computer. And then I made a game and we could play it until it was time to turn the computer off, which I'd never want to turn a computer off because I never wanted to get rid of my game, you know? Right. Um, but I just remember being so excited that even back then, and look, back then I had no clue what I was typing. I was copying things out of a book. Uh, and that's not too different from nowadays where I still don't really understand everything I type when I program. Um, but it is a little bit different because I do, I do, you know, all joking aside, have a, a you know, a much better understanding um, as, a, as a hobbyist programmer. So yeah, that makes but, one of us. Yeah. Yeah, no. Well, see, the thing of it is, is I can write high level languages, but I've also taken the time to learn like just C or C plus and actually learn how to write a graphics library or learn how to write an audio library. And so you learn how those libraries in their like most raw form interact with a computer, you know, like you actually have to designate all three points on a vertices when you're writing it from scratch. And once you learn that and you learn how to do that and you kind of understand uh, one, you never want to do it ever again. Let's be honest. I hate, I hate writing. I hate writing the raw, you know, code for stuff. Uh, using a library is so much easier. The way I look at it nowadays, if someone else has done it and done it way better than me, I'm not going to reinvent the wheel. Um, Although sometimes I just like to go back and do it from scratch because I like to understand how things work. Um, but it, it's a lot different when you do it that way and you get down to the nitty gritty to understand how things work. So you're yeah. talking like taking things back to machine code and seeing how it interacts with like the bus and the registers and everything. Right. You know, I don't do that far back unless oh, okay. like I, I don't do a lot of machine programming. Um, but, um, cause these, cause like C, C plus, they're still assembled languages, you know, mm -hmm. but, but, um, but I guess you could compare the two for bus programming is not bad. That's bad. That's more like Arduino type, uh, when you actually like mess with your micro computer, like your chips themselves, you know, I um, think Arduino is a little higher level or well, I would say even simpler, just it makes more sense because it's actual words and you can like make sense of what you're doing. It's not just small register commands or add commands or. Yep. Well, that's what I mean by I write mostly high level languages. High level languages are the ones that are more akin to English that we understand. So, right. But yeah, so 20 years it took them, you know, they made the original game in 71 it brought it over to the MECC in 75 and it wasn't until 95 that the MECC came out and said, you know, congratulations, you know, you did it. <laughs> but still, after 1975, uh, time went on. This was the time when microcomputers were becoming more common. And so the MECC began to convert their programs to run on microcomputers this was one of the first ones. A programmer named John Cook adapted this game for the Apple II. And although most of the text-based gameplay remained the same, he made a little, a few changes. He added a display of the player's position along the trail. Uh, he replaced the text-based versions of the hunting and attacking minigame with a graphical version. And so this Apple II version first came out in 1980. 
Uh, it was ported over to the uh, Atari 8-bit family in 82, and it was ported over to the Commodore 64 in 1984, though. Um, really, no, though. It was ported over to the Commodore 64 in 1984. None of these versions, however, are the version of the game that is most widely known. Uh, that distinction belongs to a version created by a team at the MECC that was released in 1985. So back in October of 1984, after they ported the first one to the Commodore, the MECC commissioned R. Philip Bruchard alongside a small team to make a graphical version of this game for the Apple II computer. This version was going to be designed differently from the old version in that they wanted this one to appeal to the home market to be sold in retail stores as opposed to the original uh, which was solely sold to the educational market you know school mainframes and computers and and so on and so forth they wanted this version to not only be a graphical update but they also wanted it to be a complete expansion on the game itself. You know, over the course of development, there were basically uh, what you can boil down to 21 different things uh, that they changed from the text-based original. Now, before wow. I, I know, right? Before I cover those 21 things, Rob, did you play the Oregon Trail in computer in like computer lab as a kid? Yes, I did. Okay, so. I didn't know how far that went generationally because we definitely did. Um, and I can tell you that the 1985 version is most definitely the version I, I know. Um, do you remember it at all? Not very much. I, I don't honestly remember. I just know that I did. Um, and then more recently though, I did try the, uh, Oregon Trail card game. Nice. Or board game, I guess I don't really know what you would call it. Yeah, I played it recently. There's a, a, a modern version on the Apple. It's a mobile version. That's It's Oregon Trail. Just looks better, fancier. Do you remember... So you don't remember it well. The, the river rafting. I guess I'll start out there. The river rafting. Do you remember if it was a side view or a top view? Do you remember that at all? Uh, I do not. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Do you remember being able to play as a blacksmith or a doctor, like getting to choose professions? I did not have professions that I recall. No. So you may have played the 1985 version. May have played the 1985 version. Okay. So 21 innovations that that they improved on from the original text-based version. Uh, For starters, they made the geographic locations uh, more detailed in the way they looked also more accurate to their historical depictions. Landmarks were added to the game. Do you remember landmarks as they went along? Like the Devil's Rock, I think, was I, I and, and some of them? Yeah, I do. Okay. <clears throat> there were daily cycles added to the game, uh, so players could encounter a new event daily, and your supplies would be tracked based on their usage daily. They added branches in the travel path. Uh, do you remember being able to decide which way you wanted to go at certain points? I'm pretty sure, yes. So that was an addition that came in this version. Uh, river crossings. We joked around. We joked 
we joked around about having to ford the river in the start of this episode, the top of this episode, and that was something that was specifically added to this version. I it's it it kind of makes you think as we go through these, like what the hell did the original version have, you know? Right. Not anything, just text. Yeah. Hunting was improved upon. Uh, the point system was added, so a score. And I don't know if you remember, but there was a high score list at the end uh, if you finished. Family members were added. Do you remember? I mean, we joke around. We joked around about not dying of dysentery. But do you remember having to control like your supplies and everything to, you know, keep your family from getting sick or if someone was injured, how it changed? Yeah, absolutely. They added npcs non-player characters people that you could talk to at the landmarks and the shops along with river crossings they, the river rafting game was added when you died or when your family died do you remember the tombstone tombstone scene mm-hmm. that was new uh health was new weather was new resource management was now a concept it really wasn't in the old one the screen of your wagon traveling when you're traveling between uh, like when you pick the travel during a day in between events that was new. The general store where you could purchase supplies that was an addition. Uh, more accurate disease. The ability to change the difficulty of the game. The ability to trade supplies. The option to rest or change your pace. And lastly they added historically accurate music to the game. A whole lot of things that were changed that really makes me go, huh, what did they have before? (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't seem like a whole lot. I mean, who knows? Maybe just because of all of that, there was already a lot and we just don't think of it. But I don't know. It seems like a lot of things. I know. I know. And like I said, this version was designed in 1985 for the Apple II computer. As we moved out of that era and we moved into IBM-based computing, you know, MS-DOS and Windows and so on and so forth, there was one other version created. This one came out about 1993 or so. And in these versions, between them, there were a few other changes. Uh, I just talked about character classes. So you could start out as a farmer, a doctor, or a blacksmith. That would start out with like different supplies and different money, different traits, and that would affect your score um, if you got through the entire trail. Um, So, like I said, these character classes, these characters that had the specific abilities uh, in this version, hunting was changed to a first person view. Uh, The Oregon Trail, I remember, was a third party view where you saw your guy and you just ran and deer would run across sideways and you would have to like shoot them. It was like a, I don't, I don't want to say it's top down, but definitely was not a first person view in the, in the one I remember. Um, but the river rafting game was changed to a top down view in the first river rafting game. It was a side view where you tried to get across the river and in this one, it changed to a top down view. Um, you could also chain, you could also save at this point when they did these versions for windows, you know, saving was definitely more commonplace in the game. So you could, you could save, um, you could change the end game speed. So it wasn't just one, one pace. Uh, and they also kind of separated the food into perishable and non-perishable. So the strategy 
the strategy of the game kind of changed, you know? Right, yeah. For those of you that have never played it, I guess let's talk about that for a moment, what the Oregon Trail is. So, the original Oregon Trail, as we talked about, was a text-based strategy game in which the player leads a wagon train that can, and controls a group that's journeying down the Oregon Trail. Now, the Oregon Trail was a trail in which settlers traveled from roughly Independence, Missouri to Oregon City, Oregon in your early to mid 1800s, purchase supplies, and then you play through in the original. It was 12 rounds of decision making. Each week represents two weeks on the trail. Um, Each round begins with the player being told their current distance along the trail and the date along with their current supplies. These supplies include food, bullets, clothing, cash. Um, And with your time, you're given the option to hunt for food. Um, You're given the option to stop at a fort to purchase supplies. You're given an option to consume how much food you could. You could have your people eat normal portions or lesser portions. Um, And then the game puts you through a few random events and weather conditions. And in these events were things we just talked about, like storms could damage supplies. Your wagon could break down. You could get attacked by animals or hostiles. Um, Weather conditions could slow down your travel. Uh, There was a whole bunch of things that uh, that could. So, Rob, we talked about what you did in the game, right? Right. Like we, we don't really understand. So take this, for instance, when you hunted in the original game, the game would prompt you to type a word in the original version. That word was bang to to shoot your gun. Oh, I know. In later versions, you could also choose pow. So hmm. bang or pow. When you were hunting, the faster the word was typed, the more food is gathered. And then you just kept rinsing and repeating through the rounds until you reached Oregon or you died along the trail, you know, due to attack or running out of supplies or dying of cold weather because you don't have clothing. There was all sorts of ways you could die. In 1985, things changed a little bit. You start out your game. We talked about the doctor and uh, the blacksmith in in the later versions, well, those were additional character classes in the 1985 version. You had a few basic character classes. You could be a banker from Boston, a carpenter from Ohio or a farmer from Illinois. And then each, each one of those would start out with a different supply of money. You know, the banker obviously would have the most money. The farmer would have the least. And then again, they would set off from independence, Missouri. There were several landmarks along the way where you could make decisions or stop for supplies or even rest. You could purchase more oxen to pull your wagon. You could purchase food, clothing, ammunition, uh, spare wagon parts because like your wheel could break and then you would need, you know, a new axle for it. You could buy those ahead of time. Um, We talked about landmarks. Some of the landmarks would include the Kansas River, the Fort Kearney, uh, Soda Spring, Snake River, Fort Walla Walla, just a whole bunch of, of, of fun stuff. Just a whole bunch of fun stuff. Unlike the first one where you would type bang to hunt and this one, you had a cross here that would be controlled by a mouse and deer would run across the screen. So that's so that's right. It was like a duck game. I was thinking that your character was on there, but it was actually a, 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 a cross here. No, 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 no. The original version did have the leader. So I'm right. 
you would actually be on the screen and you could fire in eight different directions and fire a single shot in animals. And then in a the later version, when they switched the first uh, first person view, you had the crosshair and then you could carry back, uh, you know, only so much meat. And yeah, that would be fun. And then like the original, you could also die in different ways. You could fall ill, you know, get measles, snake bite, exhaustion. You could catch typhoid, cholera, or the famous one, dysentery. You can also drown or be accidentally shot. So that's fun. Sounds like the the uh, it sounds like the Oregon Trail was a rough time, Rob. Oh, absolutely. What do you remember? Like, what do you remember about the game? Not surviving. Not. I don't know. If I I ever finished it. it, it In. I can tell you playing it on the computer, I have never finished it. I managed to on the board game, card game, whatever you want to call it, one, uh, maybe twice. But yeah, no, most of the time, uh, honestly, I fall victim to snake bites. Really? Snake bites? Oh, yeah. Yep. That's uh, almost every time. It was, I, I mean, starvation's happened, trying to ford the river and failing at that. But snake bite, definitely multiple times. Of all things snake bites, I think I don't know what I died from a lot. I'm sure I died from snake bites. Excuse me. I don't know if I ever finished the trail myself, but I remember having a lot of fun. I remember this being one of the games because it was a game game. You know, we the, our choices were stuff like this. We're in the world is carbon San Diego and Mavis Bacon's typing. And so Oregon Trail won out a whole lot in a computer lab, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um. I remember having I mean, a lot come of on. Fun. You didn't like typing, Dave? Come on. I like typing. You know, I still remember our com- the computer teacher in my elementary school. I think her name was Miss Adamus. And I always used to get picked to go into the computer lab early and help her, like, set it up. Because we would get to pick, you know, today we're going to be playing this. And I'd have to take my five and a quarter floppy disk and stick it in the computer and write the run command you know, type in the run command to get the game to load up because that's what we all did back then. I got to come help her and set up all those computers. Wow. I've been, I guess I've been into this for as long as I can remember. Yeah, I could just type fast. That was all. I could type fast too. We can all still type, but everybody can type nowadays. Back then, yeah. type, you were special when you could type. Nowadays, it, it's nothing special. It's just like writing. It's just, it, it might as well be writing, you know? Oh, it literally absolutely. is writing. People yeah, no, can't. It is. Yeah, people can't write anymore. Cursive is a, like a dying, a, 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 you know, a dying trait, and because everyone types everything. Well, I, I, there we go. We both remember it. We both don't remember playing through it. Uh, I did play the modern version on the i on app my my iPhone. It's looks fancier than the original version but the core aspects are still there i still can't get through the trail nothing's changed (laughs) nothing's changed i definitely think that the newer version is more like friendly because the arts the it's a more modern art style you know what i mean like i don't know it it feels better yeah yeah i guess but anyway so there you go seeing it makes you think that dying with dysentery might not be quite so bad (laughs) yeah oh man oh man well you know back in 1971 there weren't really computer critics so there per se aren't any critic reviews and i could have pulled some from 1985 but 
I, I chose not to uh, because I was, thought we could have some fun reminiscing about this game and uh, kind of pulled some reviews from our fellow gamers because it's always fun to hear about what our fellow gamers think about the game because almost everybody has played the Oregon Trail. So, Rob, this is about the time I pass it over to you. So, as always, here are some reviews from you guys out there about what you think they are, what you think about the Oregon Trail. All right, thanks, Dave. So first up, we have PC Gamer seventy seven on Moby Games, who says that Oregon Trail is a classic game, not just classic in the sense that it is an artifact from a bygone era, but also in the sense that it is well designed and still fun to play today. The different aspects of Oregon Trail, the economic decision making component, the arcade component, the educational informational component, are all well designed and well integrated. It may not rise to the overall level of quality exemplified by Sid Meier's Pirates, but it still resembles Pirates as an extremely impressive hybrid game. You have important decisions to make from the very start, like, who do I want to be? Choosing between banker or farmer doesn't just affect your final score. It determines the amount of money you will have to spend in the game, and if you're a true gamer, it will also shape your whole mindset for your game. You might even give the other members of your party, wife, children, etc., names that seem appropriate to your social status. A little role-playing goes a long way, folks. Once you get out on the trail, there are all kinds of approaches you can take. Go early and get there late. Leave late and get there early. Pay for tolls or go it on your own. Buy lots of food and supplies and never stop. Or hunt for food constantly along the way. Or just wing it. Letting the trail itself influence your decisions as you make them. For a game with a pretty strict path to follow and one main objective to reach at the end, there are certainly a lot of ways to play it. Along with the Carmen San Diego series, Oregon Trail flat out made the edutainment genre. You aren't a true fan of Apple II games, 1980s games, or educational games. Until you've played Oregon Trail. That is what made this so special. I mean, you you did. It was different every time because all the events were randomized and you could pick, you know, you, you could start out as the banker with lots of money or the farmer or um, it, it was it, there was a lot of a lot of strategy. But the thing of it is a strategy that you probably don't realize when you're like eight or nine years old, because realistically, that's probably the age when I started playing this, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, a strategy that you don't realize, or maybe I did. I don't know. That was a long time ago. I don't know. You know what I mean? Yeah, I can't even think if I was being strategical or if I was just like, go, 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 which more than likely was the case because yeah. Leroy Jenkins. Leroy Jenkins. All right. Well, Dave, next up we have Ocean's Daughter on Moby Games, who says it's good that this game has a very easy learning curve. It doesn't take very long to figure out how to get from your starting point to the Willamette Valley successfully. Trading is easy, and many times the other characters will be willing to trade for food, which is easily had in this game. Hunting is how I kept many of my wagon trains alive until the end. Much of the game is simplified, which I don't think is a bad thing, because when someone gets a broken arm or bit by a rattlesnake, you don't have to worry about them too much. 
Oh, must be nice. I know, right? <laughs> River crossing seemed to be the biggest deal in the game, as this is where you can lose supplies and kill people for the most part during the game. Yep, fording the river. That's what I remember. That's it. I don't know if anyone else has ever tried this, but I took two years to complete some of my crossings. I sincerely doubt if that happened in real life, but it enabled me to build up my score to the highest level possible by the end of the game. The pictures present a fairly good ethnic mix, which would have been present at the time. The arcade sequence can be skipped if you choose to take the Barlow Toll Road instead of going downstream. Dale's Arcade is fairly easy anyway, so taking it is no big deal. This was the first time I didn't mind an arcade sequence that much. Now, they do go on to say there are some bad things. It's bad that it's not very realistic. It's hard to get people to die when they get sick, unless you're going at a breakneck speed and never stop to rest, which is unnecessary in this game. Trying to just kill them off? Jeez. I mean, yeah. I guess supplies, but ugh, it seems so inhumane. Ah. As I mentioned before, you shouldn't be able to take two years for the crossing without some kind of penalty. And yet, I've done this several times. Illnesses not being a big deal in the game strike me as being odd. Someone who has cholera or just broke a leg is no big deal. You don't have to treat them or even worry about them. Again, this may be due to the fact that they stopped often to hunt, so my people were getting plenty of rest. You always start the same year from the same place. There really aren't an awful lot of decisions to be made along the trail in terms of where you are planning to go. The graphics are repetitive, though fairly good for the time. Some of the animation is a bit odd, though, like the rabbits and squirrels as they run across the screen in the arcade sequence. Another thing I didn't understand is why you're always, why they're always running there in the first place. Wouldn't they run after you fire their gun, not before you tried to shoot at them? The only way to make high scores is to start out as the teacher. Despite its flaws, I thought this game was a blast. I had lots of fun playing it. Well, there, there's someone who clearly understands the game, doesn't see its randomness, and thinks that it's it's repetitive and easy to get through. Wow. Must be nice. I can't say I've had the same luck. I know. I can't say I've ever gotten through it either. So, so yeah. So there you go. Well, I guess very briefly, uh, let's talk about the legacy of the Oregon Trail. You know, over the past 40 some years, the Oregon Trail has been seen roughly 10 different versions. It has sold over 65 million copies. That uh, puts it in the same category as Donkey Kong, which is a franchise has also sold 65 million copies. Super Smash Brothers, which has sold 66 million copies and Animal Crossing, which sits at 68 million copies on one. Unbelievable. I know. Well, on one hand, that's that's crazy to think about. I mean, the Oregon Trail has had a lot more time than the others. But with that being said, gaming is much more prolific now. So by the time Smash Brothers and Animal Crossing came out, there was, you know, gaming consoles everywhere. So it's it's very, very different. Um, Very, very different. Now, um, there have also been some spinoffs that they've created of this game. Uh, Same concept, just not the Oregon Trail. There was the Amazon Trail, which, you know, the Amazon River. 
Um, there was the Yukon Trail, which was the uh, Klondike Gold Rush. So you started out in Seattle and you traveled to Alaska to stalk, to stake your claim for um, to mine for gold. Uh, this one has uh, authentic 19th century photographs in it and also features the famous actor Jack London, who is kind of known for de- uh, picturesque depictions of this area. There was one called Maya Quest, the Mystery Trail, which was basically features the, the lands of Mexico where Mayan people once lived. Uh, there's another one called Africa Trail where... I guess that one speaks for itself, right? You go from South Africa to uh, Tunisia, Kenya, or Nigeria, so Africa. So the Oregon Trail was definitely so popular that that it was played everywhere. And then, like I said, if you've never played it, um, it's an Apple Arcade title, so you have to be subscribed to Apple Arcade. But earlier this year in April, uh, they released an Apple Arcade, a modern version of the Oregon Trail, which you can easily play um, on your iPad, and I did. So a lot of versions of this game. The wow. night, I know, right? I know. Well, frankly, I'd never heard of the others. I'd never stumbled across the Yukon or the Africa Trail or the Maya Quest. Maya Quest. Who the heck even knows what Maya Quest is? You know what I mean? Yeah, I'd never heard of it. But I mean, I don't know. Yukon Trail sounds kind of familiar, but I don't recall having like anything with the gold rush or anything. So I don't I don't know. Maybe it's just I've heard the term and other reasons. So the 1985 version, Rob, was so popular in computer school labs that people that were born during the cusp year. So the kind of, you know, in between wavy years uh, of the millennials and the Gen Xers have been academically referred to as the Oregon Trail generation. Wow. In 2016, this game was inducted into the World Video Game Hall of Fame. We've we've talked about the World Video Game Hall of Fame in previous episodes. At the time, it was one of only 12 games that were included in the Hall of Fame. I think 2016 would have been the second year of uh, of Hall of Fame inductions. I believe the 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 first class was 2015. And out of those 12 games, it was the only educational game on the list. It remains wow. it remains the only educational game until the 2021 Hall of Fame class induction in which Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego was also inducted into the World Video Game Hall of Fame. Um, simply put, if we're going to talk about the legacy of Oregon Trail, it's a cultural icon. It's probably one of the absolute best examples of how video game can be used as an educational tool, and it arguably helped invent the edutainment or educational video game genre. Um, I think there are very few people, at least American students, that were not introduced the Oregon Trail if you went to school in you know American schools in the you know eighties into the, into the nineties. Personally, you know what I mean? Yeah. Or even early 2000s. Yeah, even early 2000s. I would argue, too, that this game probably introduced a metric ton of people to gaming who probably wouldn't have had experience to games otherwise. And it's funny because if you look at the average 
age of a video gamer. It uh, it's 34 now. It was 37 a few years ago, so it keeps wavering. The the uh, 18 uh, year old that younger demographic is growing, um, but still at 34 to 37, that's the age range in which you know this game was pretty damn popular. And it, it probably can be argued that it introduced a, a ton of people to gaming and helped helped bolster those numbers, you know? Absolutely. So, yeah. And that's the Oregon Trail. That's that's it. Rob, do you know what the Oregon Trail actually is, like historically is? I should. But no, it, it's okay if you don't. No, it's not I, like... I, had, I'm, I know I had learned about it, and at the moment, I can't... Like, I know it's the path they've taken to Oregon, but I can't remember. I don't think it was a gold thing. No, actually, it was a fur trading thing. It was pre-gold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was a path that, as we had talked about as part of this game, that pretty much started roughly in uh, Independence, Missouri, and would end in Oregon City, Oregon. It was roughly... I'd say about 1810, 1811, uh, when it was first started to be used by fur traders and trappers, you know, and it was really only passable on foot or by horseback. And then closer to 1840, that's when uh, big migrant wagon trains would start to get organized and the wagon, it as a wagon trail became, became much more prominent between the years that we know of it, the, you know, 1830s and so on and so forth, it's believed that something like 400,000 settlers, farmers, miners, ranchers, so on and so forth, used the trail to get to the West, which was booming. You know, people were going over there to, to you know, uh, see the Westwood expansion. It's also, I'll tell you what it's mostly known for. So the famous expedition to come on the Oregon Trail was the Lewis and Clark Expedition, um, which was 18, uh, 1804, 1805, something like that. Not quite the map of the Oregon Trail, but pretty darn close. So, And then it was used by fur companies, and it was used by Hudson Bay. We have a lot of Hudson's Bay influence in Mich- the Michigan area. Um, you know, a lot of those fur traders would do business up into Midwestern Canada and they used part of it and yeah, so on and so forth. So there you go. Fur trading trail that helped people and then missionaries, immigrants, so on and so forth, get across the country. Hmm. I would say that you're not particularly wrong about the California gold rush because California gold rush was like 18, it was mid 18 the 1800s so 1845 1848 or 1850 it was somewhere in there um i would say that you're not necessarily wrong but there you know the california gold rush had the california trail which was mostly people going along california that it's known for but i mean you could argue that people probably use the oregon trail uh to get from the east coast to the west coast to join the gold rush uh, that, that's not even a hard argument to make that's academically been proven heck i'm here in new orleans and at one point you know there were trails that were made from new orleans you know even down into panama to ports in california and oregon that would probably have picked up part of the trail too so um 
it kind of got all over the place realistically. Um, but originally it was a fur trading trail and then it was an emigrant trail and that went through lots of states. And then it became a video game. And then it became a video game so we could all learn and about it. So the board game. That's exactly right. I'm interested in that board game. I have to look that one up because I like those type of games. So and yeah. there you go. That's the legacy of the Oregon Trail and a little history lesson on what it is. If you'd like to learn more about the Oregon Trail or, or check out the different versions of the games, um, we'll post links on our website at www.memorycardlane.com where I also post, aside from my research, a calendar of upcoming events. You can learn our and see our ugly mugs and our biography. There is a submission button where you could submit your memories and so on to us if you'd like us to share your memories of upcoming games. There is a link to support us on Patreon and also a link to join our Discord to come join our community to be able to play video games with us or just come and scream at me about mistakes I made. Uh, Rob loves it when people do that. So you can also find links to our social media. I'm uh, on Twitter as David is wrong. Rob, you are on Twitch these days. What is your streaming handle? I can be found on twitch.tv forward slash F A T B O I R I P Z. Awesome. 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 So, each week, we try to teach you something new about the game, what it took from the world as its inspiration, or what it gave back to the world in its legacy. And as part of our this process, we like to go roundtable and talk about what we learned for today. So, Rob, what was your biggest takeaway from today's episode? The fact that this has sold just as many copies as Super Smash Brothers. Isn't that nuts? Yeah. That blows my mind. Like I, when you, I know when you said last time about the teaser that like it had sold a lot of copies, but like it just, I, I can't fathom that. Just I understand that it's been out forever, but just that it's that popular just blows my mind. Well, real quick, you know, it, it doesn't touch the big dogs, right? Because like Minecraft has sold two hundred and thirty-eight million copies, and and the grand thefts of the world. So, yeah, it doesn't touch the big ones. So, like Mario. Mario sold 758 million. Call of Duty has sold 400 million copies. Um, the Pokemon series is at 380. Minecraft is 238, like I just said. So, it, and honestly, it doesn't touch the big dogs. But there's this little set of games in the middle of what they call games that have sold 50 million copies. And it sits right in there. I mean, Halo is 81 million copies. So, I mean, this is only 15 million copies behind it. Borderlands has sold 72 million copies. So this is right behind Borderlands. And like I said, it's right in there with Animal Crossing, Super Smash Brothers, Donkey Kong. The Dragon Ball series has sold 64 million copies. Uh, the Red Dead series has sold 62 million copies. The Elder Scrolls series has only sold 58 million copies. Your favorite series, Battlefield, has only sold 57 million copies. Um, so it's it's in it's very much in in an elite class. I mean, Civilization's only sold 57 million copies. So this is very much in an elite class. Now it's had since 1970 to get it. So you could argue it's not as prolific as a modern video game. Yes, but it still deserves recognition because, well, it sold 65 million copies. That's nothing to shy at, you know absolutely not so anyway that's, that's my, yeah that, i mean how i can't talk if it's got battlefield beat <laughs> i know right 
I know. Uh, I'll take my takeaway as I didn't know that the creators weren't publicly acknowledged for the game for 20 years. I thought that was really fascinating. So yeah, that too. That that's gotta suck. Yeah, I agree. It's I wonder if it was ever like the situation they're like, "Hey, I'm the guy who created that," and people were like, "Hey, no, you're not." And then like ten years later, like, "Oh, he was being honest." Yeah. Damn. All right, Rob. Well, before I take it out of here and tease next week's uh, pl- next week's episode, what would you like to add to the top? The what would you like to add? Well, Dave, I want to take a moment to say thank you to everyone for listening. It means the world to us. We hope you enjoy it as much as we do or more. And if you think that that's possible, let us know. We'd love to hear from you. Right on, right on, right on. Well, next week we're going to be taking a look at what's probably one of the most notorious games in video game history. It is sometimes said to have single handedly brought the whole video game market to a crashing halt. Released for the holiday season of 1982 ET The Extraterrestrial for the Atari 2600 is hardly a gaming masterpiece. So what happened? Where exactly did this game go wrong and why is it so notorious? Well, we're going to take a look at all that next week. So it's going to be a little less on ET and we're going to look at the event that it's it's basically attributed to, which is the video game crash of 1983. And yeah, so join us again next week. Uh, we're going to do a little bit more that phone at home, uh, but we are going to take a garbage dump filled trip down memory card lane. Do the thing. Do 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 dysentery.